We're all about those number ones. This week on The Byword, we're looking at four brand new launched comic series. Are they good or are they stinkers? The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, episode 167. Now that we have survived a whole month of 90s-tinged nostalgia with our Amalgam Month, it is time to look at some more modern comics. How modern? Brand new launch number ones. But before we get there, it's time for... All right, Chris, what's new? Well, we've got some good news. Um, as of the time of recording, the WGA has reached an agreement um, with the motion picture companies. Uh, they have basically got everything that they wanted, Dave, the reason that they strike for, I believe, 164 days. Um, they have higher pay. They have the the minimum staffing on writers' rooms. Um they have protections against AI that AI cannot produce a script. They cannot edit scripts, uh, which is wonderful. And then the coolest thing that I'm most excited about is the success-based residuals. So what we've been clamoring for for ages is if something is streamed 200 million times, that should be a quantifiable thing and you should be able to reward the people who are behind that successful project and not just some flat rate that would garner them the same amount as something that did not perform well. Um, so this is very, very exciting. Now, as of the time recording, um, SAG-AFTRA is set to meet uh, in the next day or so uh, to try and uh, negotiate as well. So here's hoping, Dave, that... Uh, sunnier days are on the horizon when it comes to our entertainment and that unionization and worker strikes are effective negotiation tactics yeah by the time this airs um it's very possible that a lot of this has already been settled since we like to record uh, you know at least a couple of weeks ahead of time um but this is really exciting news like in the here and now, I don't know where things are, what things are looking like in the future when you're listening to this, folks, but in the here and now, uh, this, this is a really, really exciting prospect, not the least of which, uh, and Chris and I have already talked about this, we have kind of tried to avoid um, as much new content uh, as possible in the realm of, you know, uh, movies and television. But my God, there are, there are a couple of things we'd really like to talk about uh, here pretty soon. Um, and so it would be nice to be able to uh, to do that again. But I'm so pleased that the deal looks to be so favorable towards what uh, the writers have been asking for, because uh, it, it goes to show that, uh, you know, when there is a will to do these things, uh, they, the, the big co uh, corporations in Hollywood definitely can pony up. The big studies, studios can treat their creatives well when you know literally they're not given any other choice. It's sad that we had to go through this massive strike, right? Um, 
But, uh, you know, at, at the very least at this point, uh, we know that, uh, you know, uh, this is the method, you know, this is the way, uh, as the, you know, the Mandalorian would say. So, uh, you know, maybe the actors, you know, are going to be able to, to level the same, you know, strategies to get uh, what they uh, think is uh, fair in, in their new contract. And then we can, you know, get back to the business of just like enjoying some really good content being created out of that part of the industry. So I'm, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic, uh, that the striking days are going to be, you know, behind us soon at this point, uh, and that this is just the first domino, uh, in, in a series of dominoes that are going to fall to bring, you know, everybody back into the fold and back to work. So I'm, I'm excited for the content, uh, that lays on the horizon, Chris. Now, Dave, one of the reasons that writers and actors are so stringent on protection against AI is to avoid some of the hogwash like you have in your news story. Yeah, so uh, a a recent social media post uh, shared a Batman comic, and I put comic here really in quotation marks, um, that was created through AI generation. Uh, So... OpenAI's latest image generation model, which is Dolly 3, um, was just recently released as of this recording, and uh, people have been already playing around with it to see what it can, you know, do uh, to create quote-unquote AI art. A um, uh, An individual on Twitter, uh, or X, or whatever you want to call it, oh, we're calling it Twix, yeah, so, uh, Twix. so a user on Twix um, shared a four-page uh, comic basically of Batman um, and posted OpenAI's latest image generation model Dolly 3 makes it so all caps for so easy to create comic books here are four panels for fan made Batman comic made in under five minutes prompts included in the alt text enjoy with a little fire emoji um, needless to say the comic book industry has been quick to, uh, you know, turn its back on this particular post, uh, especially because there's much to critique, uh, especially since uh, these panels. So they feature a Batman that looks shocked, surprised, and is yelling for Robin. Then you see a close-up of the Joker laughing, a Batmobile uh, racing along, and then you see uh, the Joker threatening Robin. The Joker in particular is very, very clearly imitating the Joker design from Brian Bolland and Mike Allred. Uh Like it is, it is so obvious for people who know anything about, about comic books and about the history of the Joker character. It is, it is so obvious and in your face, it's ridiculous. It's also very clear that the Batman model used is, is very clearly a sort of Adam West inspired, right? It's probably um, uh, from uh, based on some art from the Batman um, 66 comic book. So, you know, AI does what AI does, right? It uh, is using real art and, and just remixes it, you know. So, so human art remixed is all this thing really does. Needless to say, uh, there's been a whole bunch of artists that have been really critical on social media about this. Uh, Javier Rodriguez, for example, was one of them. Um, he said you could do the same thing a while ago with a photocopier and some scissors, Stealing other people's art seems easier now and lucrative for those behind generative models. Um, Ramon Villalobos, uh, probably Villalobos. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to work on my pronunciation. Uh, this this bleep is a mess. 
Batmobile switches designs between panels 1 and 2, and Joker clearly is swiped and the style is inconsistent throughout. Not surprising a art enthusiast think it's a huge achievement, though, because they are complete dummies. Uh, comic book writer Daniel Kibblesmith also mocked the results online. Uh, he posted, uh, Bleep, it looks exactly like a computer churning out a dark bleep impression of a Batman go- comic. You guys did it! <laughs> Uh, comic book writer Sarah Horrocks uh, called out the use of balance work in particular, actually. It is so obvious, man. It's not even funny. That's literally just Brian Balance Joker. The shamelessness of this technology is appalling. I guess it's okay to steal. Just call it AI. And, you know, there's been there's been dozens of, you know, comic book pros, people from the indie scene that have all sort of lined up on social media to decry this. Um and get generally responses from these, I don't know, AI bros who are like, no, man, it's just leveling the playing field, you know? Now, okay, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make, I'm just going to like keep it real for a second. I am a comic book writer and not a particularly successful one, but I write comic books and I understand that I am 100% dependent on how artists interpret my scripts. It is the equivalent of writing a Hollywood movie and then handing it off to a group of people, a director, uh, actors, casting directors, all of these people that then collaboratively create the finished work of art. If you are not prepared as somebody who wants to create comic books to either A, learn to be a good artist, or B, rely on the collaborative process to create a finished piece of art, then you have no business in the comic book industry because those are the two routes. There are no shortcuts. And what AI is creating is not original work. We have to once and for all accept that the way AI works at this point is simply that these companies feed it art and AR, AI basically remixes it. It learns from real human beings' art and just remixes it. Without the human art, this stuff would not happen, which means that this is theft, plain and simple. This, this is not a shortcut to, be, to becoming a, a, a comic book creator. This is theft. And just because the law has not you know, caught up yet to the technology doesn't mean it's not theft, right? And and the law will catch up. Laws are notoriously slow to catch up to this kind of stuff. But they will catch up. And there will be rules governing the kind of stuff that you can feed into these AI models. And copyrighted works are not going to be on the menu forever. And then these people are going to very quickly realize if they can't create art to, to begin with to feed into this AI model, then the AI model is useless. It is a house of cards built on theft, plain and simple. There are no shortcuts to becoming a comic book professional. There are no shortcuts to becoming a writer. There are no shortcuts to becoming an artist. There are no shortcuts for to, for creativity. That's just it. You'd go through the process. And I will say that as a as somebody who has written you know comic book stories before, I am glad that the comic book medium is a collaborative process. I am glad I can't just feed you know a, a prompts into an AI model and it spits out exactly what I what I asked for because the creativity of the artists that I have collaborated with 
alone over the last year have improved every single idea I had vastly, vastly. Because they bring their own perspective and their own ideas to the table. And that collaborative process improves the artistic work. Plain and simple. So I, I, I would not use, even if this wasn't theft, I would not use an AI model to help me create uh, a comic book story. I would not. Because I would be missing out on this collaborative process. That's the cornerstone of what makes you know, creating comic books different from writing, you know, prose. It's the collaboration. It's not just, hey, it's, it's got pretty pictures. It's the writer, the, the artist, the colorist, the letterer, all coming together to create something unique, each bringing their own talents to the table. And so I find this, frankly, offensive. I think I think it's it's completely counter to what the comic book industry is about, what comic book creation is about. It, in addition to being theft, it's just offensive to the creative process, plain and simple. Yeah, and I liken it to um, you know it, it's pretty sad, Dave, because this is a lesson that I have to teach um, to to my students who are who are children, as to when they're in a foreign language classroom why they cannot simply copy and paste into an online translator. Okay. Because there are statutes built um, through whatever educational institution you have about academic integrity and integrity being the kind of the quintessential word there, the most important paramount word there is integrity. Okay. And so when when a 15 16 year old child you know copies and pastes something because they just want to take the easy way out they want to just get it done and they're met with the disappointment of being called out on it okay why why have we not learned our lesson from that and why are we still having to teach the same lesson to grown adults um, and so, like, what what made you think that this was art? What made you think that this was something unique that you have contributed to pop culture, to society? Something that was rooted in someone else's work. You did nothing to contribute that, rather other than copying and pasting, or or just dumping it into this generator what was your contribution and so like it's it's sad <laughs> that we have to have the same discussion that i have with children as an educator as a role model as someone who is trying to prepare them for the future in a world where if you're writing a research paper you cannot just plagiarize and and, and we're fighting this on the education front as well ai with chat gpt and all this nonsense and and all the different educational institutions have really had to ramp up and be very clear if this is found you know the, these are the repercussions whatever and then we're you know so we're we're trying to teach this to children to kind of set them on the right path all the while adults are doing the same thing and you know i'm i'm going to go ahead and say it like 
I am not one of those never AI bros either. Like, you know, I think there are things. They're the same idiots that told us to buy these NFTs. And how did that work out for them? In, the same exactly. idiots that told us to invest in Bitcoin. How is that working out for them? Look, the thing to, the thing to, you know, to, to remember, in my opinion, is this. A new technology's job is supposed to be to make our lives easier uh, it, and it should make it should enable us to do work if, does that make sense to, it is not supposed to replace yes, to humans right the wor- streamline, streamline so, the work process yes so for example you know i've, I've been reading up on uh, how um ai is being used in education right so the big thing when you're looking at uh, ai in education is generally um you know complaints about um you know students trying to use ai to generate essays and to cheat and all that and 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 I'm, no doubt that is a problem right no doubt however i also think that there are things you can do with it legitimately for example i think it's very interesting that you can take a piece of text and level it to um, a particular reading level you know so the idea that you can take a text as a teacher that you're trying to use with students and you can say okay this this kid is struggling so i can level this at a second or third or fourth grade reading level that that is useful right because you're still you you are still doing the work the student is still working with the text but you have now lowered the reading level so it is appropriate for that kid that's genius right that would be that's that would be no com- different than you and i like a student has a one-on-one and they need us to explain that in simpler terms in layman terms if you will yeah exactly and so so that kind of stuff ai is absolutely uh genius for if you know but but it should not replace human and in that scenario and that, it should not replace in that people. scenario in, in that scenario, you're calling it what it is. You're not claiming that it's something else entirely. You're not claiming that it's some new new life that you've created. Exactly. You're saying, hey, there's this piece of text and I leveled it down for you. So, you know, using AI to make sure that you can understand it. And now we're talking, you know, I have like, for example, I have a student who's, who cannot read English. OK, cannot read English. I use Google Translate to translate websites that we're using. So he has equal accessibility to that. I'm not claiming that this is a new creative work that he and I have created together. Exactly. You know, that's what I keep trying to say here. It's not about... It is not about uh, we don't want AI at all. It's a, you know any anything technology wise can be used in a useful way or in a destructive way. And I just happen to believe that you know trying to steal other people's art, remix it using AI, and then passing it off as some kind of great original creation that is destru- that is a destructive use of the technology. Now, what about the TikToks where you have um, SpongeBob singing "Don't Stop Believing"? <laughs> I hate you right now. <laughs> Or plankton. It's journey, man. You can't heard, replace I Steve heard, Perry. I heard. I heard. Uh, I think plankton singing peaches. I, I am going to need therapy after that. Uh, I'm, I'm, that's that's why I'm not on TikTok much. I think. I think that sums it up perfectly right there. <laughs> All right, folks. There you have it. That's it for nerd news. Stick around because we are about to discuss some brand new comic books and whether they are worth a read.
All right, ladies and gentle nerds, we're back, and it is time for this week's And I'm really excited for this one because we're looking at some new comic books being released with fresh number ones. Uh, on the he's, also today, excited. Be... he's also excited. He's also excited because it's majority DC books. I mean, majority? There's two out of the four. I mean, that's 50%. Uh-huh. And there's only one Marvel. So 25%. Oh, that's because me. that's because you came along with, with uh, a non-DC or Marvel book here. So I did. That one's no, on so you, man. I, I laid that. I say, listen, the sacrifices that I make for this podcast... <laughs> <laughs> So we got we got Wonder Woman number one, uh, Captain America number one, The Flash number one, and Rare Flavors number one. Uh, so two DC books, a Marvel book, and a book from Boom Studios. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start with Wonder Woman number one. Wonder Woman number one is written by Tom King with art by Daniel Sampere. Sampere? Samper? I feel always so embarrassed that I don't know how to pronounce names. Um, and, uh, in this story, you have, uh, a Wonder Woman who becomes sort of ostracized from the superhero community as she becomes wanted by the U.S. government for a very interesting set of circumstances. Um, Chris, I'm very interested to hear your take on this. I know you're not as deep into Wonder Woman lore as I am, um, but I'm very interested to hear your take on, on this new number one, because it seems like a very new an interesting direction for uh, Wonder Woman. And that cliffhanger definitely raised some questions. Well, like, so what I appreciate about this book, um, I wish I could say the same about the other DC book, is that it is very new reader friendly. Now, I do have some connected tissue because a friend of the show, Stephanie Williams, was writing Nubia, so I've done all that. Also, Daniel St. Perry's Nubia looks gorgeous in this book. Um so yeah, this one, um, I really enjoyed this book um, with the caveat that as an X-Men fan and given the current state of X-Men comics, uh, I the other, I opted for Rare Flavors as my second pick because um, number one, uh, our beloved Kamala Khan's number one was, was a good deal about a month or two ago. So I feel like that was a little bit too far to punt back. And also just, it's just depressing, you know, after the Hellfire Gala and where we we are you know the snake eating its own tail with x-men comics of they're the other they're bad uh and all that jazz um so i i did get similar vibes from that so that's the one caveat i had about this is it can create interesting conflict but i don't i don't love the idea of women in this scenario being othered um that made me a bit uncomfortable um but the, the at the same time, like it's so really well done, and this I think this might be my first Tom King book that I've read. But given what I know of his background is uh, ex CIA, if I'm if I understand correctly, so like that that mil that military geopolitical kind of Bond esque kind of thriller comes through here, um, really well done. The there was one moment that was really hard to watch. Um, where the one you have a mother that is gunned down, an Amazonian mother is gunned down. It was really tough to watch, but um, the art absolutely is out of this world. Great, great stuff. Um, I'm absolutely intrigued to watch this 
story continue. Um, there's just so many good character moments in this. Uh, I love the I love the panels where we're at like the Lincoln Memorial Washington Monument, like that reflection pool, and like we have the panel work is really creative. Um, and then, like you said, the cliffhanger uh, is is going to be really interesting. And the fact that we have the adversary narrating the entire time was was a really fascinating storytelling device, in my opinion. And in Media Res, I mean, if it's it's very clear that he mentions repeatedly that Wonder Woman defeated him, right? Like mm -hmm. he's looking back on a defeat story here. So we kind of it's bold. Uh, as a storytelling yes, device, yes, if you ask me, yes. to say up front, this is how it's going to end. Let me show you how we got here. Like, you know, because a, a part of the mystery then is gone. And I think with serialized storytelling in particular, the mystery of what happens next is similar so important. To, similar to what, um, sorry to interrupt, but similar to what we saw with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre last week. Exactly. Like, they come out and they say, this is what's going to happen, right? And then they still manage to to tell a really uh, you know compelling story, um, yeah. And, and, and I don't feel bad about like going full spoilers on this, you know. So okay, um, I, I think we definitely need to to really talk about it. I think you're right that that Tom King has a tendency of getting um, a little political in his work, right? I mean, he does he does want to discuss um, you know societal issues and and all this stuff. Um, and I think that's really interesting in his writing. Does it always hit um, the the way you would hope? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think he's he's necessarily like a, a flawless, perfect writer or something. However, I think he's that the one that did one Heroes really in Crisis. Hit. He did Heroes in Crisis yeah, that you did not. Enjoy, and it took right? and, no. I I took me a long time to forgive Heroes in Crisis. Um, but then I think was it not Tom King that also did the the Supergirl book I loved so much. Yes, Woman of Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Woman of Tomorrow. So that that was the moment where I forgave him for Heroes in Crisis, right? There are there are things he does. He takes, you know what? We, let's talk about uh, let's talk about uh, Dan Slott for a second, who uh, recently posted something about, uh, you know, to the effect that on 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 X Twix that uh, you know we cannot be mad at writers for doing things we don't like with characters or something because it's the writer's job to take take you know big swings. Um, and my response to that was that that's fine, but I don't think in many properties writers necessarily take big swings. You know, a lot of writers play it pretty safe these days with these superhero properties. But I think King generally takes big swings, you know, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Now, am I 100% sure that this is going to, to work beyond this first issue? I don't know, man. I don't know where the story is going, which is in itself really nice, right? But I think that there is definitely something working in this first issue. It does provoke an emotional response, right? I mean, you have you have the situation of this this Amazon um, appears to to basically kill a bunch of guys in a bar, right? And that is sort of the first you know initial incident that leads the the U.S. government to basically say we're going to expel all Amazons forcefully if we have to, and that chain of events is is heartbreaking in places, right? It definitely, it definitely creates an emotional response, and and that's kind of in contrast to the to the almost ridiculous nature of the last page reveal, which is that this adversary is basically the king of America, <laughs> who yeah. has been like ruling from the shadows, and nobody knows he exists, right? 
And so there, there is certainly a very comic book. Which given which that, given the state of being, you know, a citizen of the United States would be the least surprising reveal in some some days. <laughs> there are days where you wonder, right? Yeah. Um, so it feels it feels very comic book silly in that respect. But so much of the rest of the book feels very, very grounded in a um this could happen, you know, take take the Amazons out of the equation and name any other group of people, you know, and, and suddenly this becomes, you know, ha- almost haunting, you know, and I am sure if we go on social well, some media of that, right Well, some now, of that subtext, some of that subtext becomes textual with the, the two mothers in that household. Some very that, much so. There is some really, really abrasive language given there. And I will say that you and I both know that if we go on social media right now and look, and, and look up the, 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 the discourse around Wonder Woman number one, there's at least one person who's already said, oh, Wonder Woman's gone woke, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you and I both know that this is part of the conversation because as soon as you try to have serious, um, uh, you know, societal analysis as part of your storytelling. World which outside is a very, your very window, old, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, then you immediately uh, have a section of the fandom that's like that's too political, right? Um, but I, but I think you know th- this one gets a really good, strong emotional response. I feel like superhero stories are very you know bam bam slap people around, and oftentimes you don't get a strong emotional response for them. Mm-hmm. If you can create a story that creates an emotional response in somebody. I, th- I think that's the right track, you know? So I'm very curious to see where this is going, Chris. Yeah, and I think that's, like, my my greatest frustration with what's happening in X-Men comics right now because there are so many large groups of people who can relate to those characters, can relate to their experience, and then to kind of have that waylaid. You know, you look at the Hellfire Gala and you have the most diverse X-Men team in history. And then on the very next page, they're brutally murdered, dismembered. It's really kind of hard to kind of forgive that. As 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 strong as some of the storytelling might be, as interesting as some of the plot threads that ripple out from that might be, it's, it's really hard to forgive that. Um, and so it's... It's definitely an intriguing one to watch here, and I, I another eye roll towards Dan Slot to kind of circle back to what you were saying is just like that's such a Dan Slot thing to say. <laughs> like you can't criticize art. Like we have art critics. Like nothing is ineffable. Like I think about the James Baldwin quote. Like if I love something that I'm going to criticize it because I want it to be better. And I'm paraphrasing. That was a bad paraphrasing, but like I love Spider-Man and I'm going to critique it, you know, (laughs) like, and as big swings as you can take similar to the Texas chainsaw thing, similar to this wonder woman storyline is like when when you're in an intellectual property, like Spider-Man, like wonder woman, that's this to borrow your phrase long in the tooth you know that the big swings are going to swing right back at some point. We're going to go back to the status quo. And it's so it's just like, are you going to enjoy the the ride while you get there? And sometimes you do. And sometimes you don't. And, and I, I have no ill will towards like writers that I just don't enjoy their storyline, but 
this it feels such as like a disingenuous thing to be like don't don't say mean things to me on the internet yeah exactly all right that brings us to our next book let's switch over oh, real to quick the one note so- one note i i, I want to pinpoint like the perfection of the sad boy dad who's just like see this is the problem men are having in this country like that was perfect i actually like that scene so much because of how it contrasts with the daughter like yes. the back and forth and that was that. such a, such a smart like this is my idol i love wonder woman all the while your dad is an incel sorry <laughs> Yeah, that that back and forth was was perfect. He, talk about a father who is oblivious to the impact that a person is having on his kid, right? Or or the the your words and actions and your sentiments toward women have towards you being a father of a young girl. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so a second book uh, that we're wanting to talk about uh, is J. Michael Straczynski and Jesus Saez on Captain America number one. Now, I, I think it's fair to say that you and I both have sort of soft spot for soft spot for Straczynski's run on Spider-Man, yeah? Indeed. Um, so seeing him, seeing him back in the Marvel fold uh, and on Captain America of all characters has been an interesting feeling. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what your take was on this one. So, like, I, I love, as you said, I love the JMS Spider-Man run. I can't wait to get to his Thor run because I've heard great things from you and others about it. Um, and and Captain America is one of those characters that I kind of just, like, this, have this peripheral appreciation for. Um, like, sometimes he is counterintuitive to my beloved X-Men. And so, like, I'm like, all right, Steve, kind of an eye roll. But, like, for the most part, I kind of vibe with, with Steve Rogers. Um and so seeing one of my favorite writers on this character is really, really cool. Um, but you know me as like the, the uh, not necessarily anti-nostalgia, but like be careful about nostalgia guy. Like that's kind of the, the seat I've painted for myself here on this podcast. But like, so it's always like a skeptical when it comes to like the greatest generation type of situation. But like, I really dug this book. I thought it was really cool kind of like to strip down Steve to his most base characteristics and the mind, the man inside the super soldier, if, if that makes sense, like taking care of his neighborhood. And um, I was a little bit eye rolly of like, oh, my mom lived in this building and stuff for like, OK, you can move, though. You can leave. As someone who's moved a lot in their lives, you and I both can appreciate this. Like, okay, all right, you can't go home again sometimes. But there were the other people living in the tenement as well that were being unjustly ousted. So, like, I did appreciate that. Um, the art on this just absolutely sings. I loved it. Uh, the black and white stuff was cool. The flashback to present day, like, had this kind of connective tissue in terms of the art. Um, and then, you know, this is like... This is so similar to like the the early Spider-Man days of like where he's broke and trying to make ends meet and do it and whatever it takes. And then you have like a side quest with the Fantastic Four that was that was kind of cool. Um, but I thought this was like a really strong start of of what the story is that that JMS wants to tell. I'm not sure how long he plans to be on the book. So like how long this is going to be a thing. Um, but I'm definitely intrigued to kind of see where this storyline goes. 
especially like the the major arc kind of see what happens there that that was kind of some some sci-fi shiftiness almost like an indiana jones thing yeah i think there's definitely some interesting stuff going on in this book um straczynski and that last page that last page yeah i think straczynski is so good to uh at getting to a the heart of a character and he's been always really good in his work when it comes to um I guess just representing what a person is like, what a character is like in their everyday life, right? Taking a taking a step back and not just doing superheroics. And for me, much for me this- he's the greatest. He's the greatest reason why. He's the greatest argument for Peter and MJ being together. For me, um, I he, think he, he definitely I think doomed, is a guy. I think who- uh, I think Doomed Affairs is the most underappreciated arc in all of Spider-Man comics. That that stuff where there it's like the side by side where he goes to L.A. to find her to like chase after her. She goes back to New York and you have those side by sides. It's some of the most heartbreaking like stuff that you'll ever see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what what he does here is very much sort of in that vein, like he just kind of spends a lot of time with. Steve not even being Captain America. We get a couple of really good scenes. Like we get the the beginning chase and we get a scene where he does you know comes back from you know being out with the Fantastic Four and, and foils that robbery, right? But the book is predominantly focused on really um I guess you could say just like his relationships with people, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way he interacts with the the other tenants in the building, the way he interacts with with the guy who helps, you know, save him, and then he hires him to do construction, right? Like His conversation with Tony the, was fun. Yeah, I think there's a, it's very much a a, a a character study, and I think that's why I, the flashbacks were so interesting too now you and i both know the way this works right like the flashbacks are not just there to illuminate character very clearly whatever happened to cap in his early days there before he became points. captain america yeah. is going to come full circle and somehow link in with with whatever is going on with i've this, seen this, this story villain, before right? yeah <laughs> yeah so this is this is not just hey i want to you know show you what what captain america was like as a kid you know but um, that too was interesting, you know, like we've, we know a fair deal of Captain America's, you know, youth, like that's, that's like comic book legend at this point. Everybody knows, you know, a young scrawny kid, you know, loses parents, ends up with, uh, you know, with the army, can't get signed up, joins the super soldier program. Right. But he kind of, Straczynski kind of finds some interesting places in between the broad strokes that we know. And I'm very interested to see not just where the present day storyline is going, but also how that is going to loop back and connect to his past. Because I feel like we're getting sort of a quote unquote untold chapter. You know what? Uh, you know of, what this immediately made me youth. think of. This immediately made me think of, and I was a huge fan of it. That's why I was looking so forward to his Spider-Man run, the Nick Spencer cap run, the Hydra cap, which I yeah. will defend. I will defend to the ends of the earth. I really enjoyed that run. I thought it was innovative. I thought it was ambitious as all get out. And I thought it was, I thought it was really well done. Um, and especially given the, the political climate of the time, like you had, you had some, there's this one red skull speech from back. I think it was back in the forties or something like that. And it sounded like a Trump rally. Like it was very poignant. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued to see where this goes as well. 
Now, Dave, yeah, I think now, Dave, you are you are someone as as a German born person. You are very, uh, you know, critical of overuse of Nazis. What are your thoughts on this? I don't think that you could be overly critical about the use of Nazis in a Captain America story. Uh, the characters. So is that something like you you accepted that? Like you accept like it's the this terms and conditions, and you just hit the accept when you open this book. Yes, I think that if you're gonna if you're gonna deal with Captain America as a character, it's a little like Indiana Jones. Like Indiana Jones is gonna right, punch some Nazis. Right, right. Like it's it's just it's part and parcel. And I'm all for Nazi punching. Yeah? Right. I'm all for that. Um, I think I'm less maybe critical of um, the the overuse of Nazis and more critical of the overuse of germans as the constant bad guys you know if that makes sense right uh germans are more than just nazis right i I guess that's really what i'm what i'm getting at um but when you open up a captain america book there better be some nazi punching like that's part and parcel of the story but even here i think i think the texture of it is already very different because the one big shot that we get of nazis is for all intents and purposes american nazis right uh sympathizers Right, and that that's textually already a very very different situation than what we usually get in a Captain America book. So the idea of you know in the in the and before the, he the is America's entry before in World he has War become II. and before he's become yes. Cap even, yeah. And so seeing him um, in you know in the lead up to uh, America's entry into World War II and kind of encountering this side of America, right, like the sympathizers who thought you know the Nazis were onto something. That is a really, really interesting thing. Like I, I find I find this approach to be fascinating. I'm 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 very curious again to see where this is going. I think there's great potential here. And it's it's kind of fun to read a, a Straczynski comic book again. Like he just has a mm-hmm. very, very specific feel to how he writes uh, a comic book. Well, it's and and it's some sometimes it can be like going to see like an old band that you love so much and don't quite have it anymore. But he's still got it, man. He's still yep. got it. Um, and uh, so much so that uh, I don't know if I can eat a sandwich that looks like that for a couple days. I might be a little triggered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that, that's probably fair. Okay, so our next book on the list is, uh... is, a, is a complicated one, I think, for you. And I have complicated feelings about it as well from a different perspective. Um, actually from several different perspectives. So I'm very interested to talk about The Flash number one, which uh, features Cy Spurrier on writing duties and Mike Diodato Jr. on art. i uh, got feelings about that. Um, but uh, Chris, let's go ahead and start with your take on this book. I want to make my preconceived notions very clear before I comment on this book. I'm sure Cy Spurrier is a fantastic chap. Um, and this is not me like going after a creator. This is not me. I strongly dislike the majority of what Cy Spurrier has done to one of my all time favorite characters in comics, uh, with what he's done with Nightcrawler. It started off really promising. I nerd commended Way of X number one. That particular series um ended incredibly poorly in my opinion it was a really bad look for the character some really unfortunate i would assume unintentional unintended consequences of 
uh, treatment of a black woman and kind of the farming of her trauma and the physical violence that took place towards her and her family was really deeply uncomfortable. And I don't think I've been able to recover. There are also just like story notes that I, not the direction that I see my beloved character going in. Um, So I had to come into this book with that. Then you combine that with, this is not new reader friendly. It's not, I only, the only thing I know about Wally West is that he's your favorite and that he's Barry's nephew. Uh, I think I knew that he was married to Linda. I think I knew that. So there's so much going on here. Uh, I think you and I share the same kind of feelings about Mike Deodato's art. Um, It's, it can be a coin flip for me when you're hyper realistic in art it's it it's it can be a tricky needle to thread um the buffalo stuff looked cool buffaloes bison are my one of my favorite animals so like just that part was cool uh there's so much going on here i was happy to see mr terrific i want to know more about him that's one character for dc that i'm i want to dive deep into um but he's very much just like a tertiary character here um there is an absolutely gorgeous moment right dead center in the middle of this book with Linda and kind of how she feels out of place in her own family as the only person who is not a speedster. And she is expected to hold down the fort and be a mother. And, you know, as someone who was raised by a strong mother, um, single mom for a couple of years until she met my dad, like that was, that was something I really connected with. Um, you know, being a parent myself, that was, um, really a special moment for me. Uh, the rest of it, I don't know what the heck is going on half the time, to be honest. Like I, there's, and I think that might be intended. I don't know from, from your perspective, like it, some of it's intriguing, like the whole speed force is broken and he's in a broken place. The kids are doing some shenanigans as kids are wont to do. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the heck is going on. Some of it was really cool, but I'm just completely just sitting here on most of it. Yeah. It's it's weird to uh, approach this book as a Flash fan <clears throat> because uh, we just came off of a really, really good run that was sort of a, um, what's the best way to put it? It's sort of a return to form for, for Wally as the Flash <clears throat> after... Um, after the aforementioned Heroes in Crisis, right? Um, you know, Wally has been uh, in a weird place. Um, and so it is, you know, this is sort of, the last run was sort of a return to form for him. And it was very positive and uplifting and, and fun. And because of that, it felt very much like classic sort of Flash storytelling. And I think this is something very different by design. Um, I think the question becomes rather quickly whether this can work for the Flash. Um, so to break it down for our listeners really quickly, uh, the flash is one of several speedster characters, um, that all get their, uh, powers from something known as the speed, speed force. And there's been, you know, various different explorations of what the speed force is usually from a scientific perspective in the, in the book, right? It's, it's this 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 power in 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 the universe that the the speedsters tap into and it gives them their speed um but 
this book seems to postulate a less scientific and a more I not not even spiritual, <laughs> more of a supernatural um approach to the speed force. And so what we're getting here is very much you can you can feel it all over it. This is going to be a cosmic horror book. This is going to be, you know, Cthulhu in a nutshell. Like this is it what this looks is, cool. right? The last page looks cool. I will give it that. This yeah, it is cosmic horror generally, you know, HP Lovecraft stuff. This is this is a cool storytelling device. I I just wrote um a, a cosmic horror story myself for an anthology. Um it, it's a cool genre to play in. Uh the question becomes is this a good place for the flash? And I'm not 100% convinced after reading this as it is. So the the question the book postulates basically is what is the speed force? Is our understanding of the speed force accurate? And the Flash has always assumed the speed force is a force for good. Is it really that? Right? Or is it something different? Is there some some evil out there in this supernatural force? Right? Like Wally even at one point says, you know, it's totally scientific. It's totally scientific. Like he's trying to convince himself. Right? And so this is definitely something that is very clearly moving um, into the cosmic horror realm. Um, and it's interesting, right? I mean, there's an unease that goes through the book from the way the panels are laid out um, to, to Wally's discomfort with what is happening to his powers. One of his there's kids discom- is crying. Yeah. 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 There's a there's a discomfort between him and his wife, right? I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, mm-hmm. But, but you know, well, he, he seems he to be some, a... Bl- he said some sideways and and she should have backhanded him for that. Yeah, I, and that's and that's very much not not Wally. Sorry, get your bleep you know, button. <laughs> yeah, no, I just I'm came not, out. The, just came the, out. Pe- uh, the pen is clicking. Um, but you know, the thing is, um, this is also not Wally, right? Uh, Linda is, you know, he always Linda is his lightning rod. Like Linda is the reason that he does what he does, and he always comes back to her. You know, she's really at the center of his universe. So for him to be very dismissive dismissive yeah that's yeah. dismissive of her struggles is is sort of out of character for him um that's just not really how wally operates as a character um especially after everything he's just been through to get his wife and kids back you know there's a lot of cosmic shenanigans do you, and everything. do you see what i'm saying is one of your favorite characters and the voice is off yeah and 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 here the voice is off but i think it's also because they're trying to take a square peg and fit it in a round hole. I'm not. I'm not exactly 100% sure that cosmic horror is a great place for the Flash. Now, maybe the book will will go in and you know, like if you would take the Flash, Wally out of this book and just say this is a story that we're doing about you know random superhero X who gets powers from somewhere that he doesn't know where they're coming from, and it turns out that you know the source of his power could be evil. That's interesting, right? But as soon as you use an established character like this, it almost feels a little too far off from what the core of the Wally West Flash character and is. Ha- and and to con- I guess this is the continuing theme of this episode is how are you going to put those toys back in the box when this run is over? Yeah, I mean, if if the final conclusion is that the Speed Force is not scientific but spiritual, then you you have taken a very old concept in comics that has been very popular, and you've you've changed it. Uh, on a fundamental level, that is not something that you can undo very easily, right? And now all these future writers are going to have to deal with the consequences of that. It's going to be very difficult to go back to lighthearted, um, 
you know, a lighthearted Flash Wally West uh, family, you know, shenanigans when uh, you are postulating that some kind of evil elder god is the source of the Speed Force or something, right? So I'm unsure about this book. Um, I'm also unsure about the art. And this is as somebody who uh, liked, like, 90s Mike Deodato Jr. Like, um, he did a run on uh, Wonder Woman around the time of, like, uh, the contest, I think, and like um, Artemis was Wonder Woman for a little while in that air and everything, and his art there was was really cool for the, for you know very nineties obviously, but very very cool. This is different. Um, I think it works in one respect is because it's kind of bumping this hyper realism of the art against like the cosmic horror that's coming. That's not a bad choice. But, you know, I, I think the thing that kind of took me out of it the most was just that the photo references were so obvious. Like, did you notice who Wally is in these reference pictures? It's Chris Evans. If you go back and you look at several of the shots of Wally, it's just basically it's basically shots of, of Chris Evans as Captain America. You know, the hairstyle even kind of is reminiscent of that. The face, very much so. It's a very photo-referenced Wally, uh, Chris Evans' as Wally West, you know? Um, and maybe that's one of the things that took me out of it. Yeah, man, I think this was this would be a really interesting book if it wasn't a flash book. The fact that it, it feels like the voice is off, and I'm not sure if this is the right sandbox for the flash to play in, I think that's really what, what got me about the book. It's It's aptly written. Uh, the art is, you know, works for the story being told, I guess. Although I think it's a little too photo referenced. Um, yeah, I just, I just think it's a little off right now. And may, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll snap into place. Maybe it'll get better as it goes. But right now it feels a little off, especially considering that the run we got right before that was really, really good. Yeah, your experience sounds exactly like my reaction to the Nightcrawler books over the last three or four years. Like, there, there are some moments where, like, it has some it has some really beautiful moments, like the Linda moment I mentioned, where like it's really well scripted and well written. But then like there are just so many elements that don't seem like a, a good fit. I do wanna I do wanna follow up because I know this is something you love. And apropos for this month, the the solicit after the final page is Sergeant Rock versus the Army of the Dead, written by none other than Bruce Campbell. I can't wait for that book. <laughs> I really can't. It's, that that is that is going to be fascinating. I'm I'm here for it, man. All right, so we have one more, uh, and uh, this one is definitely a, a very very different situation, and one that I'm very much looking forward to talking about because um, I have feelings, man. Uh, this is Rare Flavors number one. I think it's from Boom Studios, right? Um, Written by Ram V and art by, I'm going to butcher his name, Felipe Andrade. You nailed it. Hey, I'm working on it. Um, and so uh, this one, I'm not even sure how to describe. You have a a immortal uh, food enthusiast who also happens to be a cannibal and is hiring a young filmmaker to help him make a documentary about food. And yet, as cray-cray as this description sounds, this was one of the more resonant new books that I've read. <laughs> Chris, what was your take on this one? Yeah, listen, this is, um, for those of you that might be new to this, this is the same creative team that did one of my favorite books of the last five years, probably. Um, 
the many deaths of Layla Starr. Uh, and so immediately when I saw this dream team getting back together, I was like, all right, I'm in. And then it really is very clear and open about what it is. Um, you have, you know, Ram V, you know, being someone of South Asian descent, writing about South Asian life and culture, very appropriate. I believe India. I don't, I'm, I'm not certain, but um, well, the story is set in India, but I believe he's from India as well. That's what I mean. But I, like, it, it's just really cool. You immediately get like this heroic um, painting of like to start off with and like this folklore and religious tale. Like it's really, really cool. And then you see the juxtaposition of this large beast that's being conquered with our protagonist. If we can call him a protagonist, I guess he's is our main character. Um, he is, he's a bad guy. And, and so kind of seeing a bad guy as like our focal point is fascinating enough. Um, but like as someone who watched Anthony Bourdain religiously, like this was a really cool callback to like all of Bourdain's shows and like how, what, what I, I, I was crushed when he passed. And what I loved about Bourdain is like, yes, you got the food. But the food was just a vehicle to tell you about these people and their way of life and their culture, um, their language, their lifestyles. Like and and so like I, it was almost like a call. It it, it was a very clear callback to that. Um, and then you have these these two equally enigmatic characters that are following him around. Um, there's so much going on here that is yet to be revealed um that I'm, I'm fascinated by and then you just have like this beautiful storytelling where like you're telling the character's backstory who has the recipe for this is chapter one masala chai uh which i love a good chai um and then you have like the story of how they got the recipe and their life story but then like the recipe is equally intertwined with that like it's just it's just so cool the way that this is told um like it's it's just a fascinating read and i cannot wait for more the art's gorgeous uh that that up front um but also i think i, I really want to mention that i find ram v to be an incredibly um humanistic writer i guess is the best mm, yes, way to put it yes, yes like his main focus although he oftentimes deals with the fantastical and with with gods and supernatural beings you get a sense and that his um his main focus is people regular everyday people and their lives and their struggles and their difficulties and and you you get that sense very clearly in the many deaths of Layla Starr as the main character kind of weaves in and out of people's lives right i screenshot this um, one and- listen to this uh, I'm quoting directly here. Mansi, I am always suspicious of a place where you cannot see the stars, sigh. I fear without that great reminder of our cosmic insignificance, we shrink our world to the point of solo- solipsism, which is selfishness. Um, as if the sky were but a ceiling you could touch. How unromantic would that be? And that's from our evil protagonist. Yeah. And I and and you know the 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 whole chai story about the guy he got the recipe from right is so interesting because it is such a such a human story references you know? the pandemic 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very lived in real thing. And to me, you know, as a, as, a, you know, very, you know, insignificant, unsuccessful writer, and that's the thing that interests me most. You're a published most, writer. Most... Stop downplaying. You are published, okay? <laughs> to me, that is the most interesting thing about telling a story, right? I mean, the, the, if you're writing horror, the scary stuff is fun. And if you're writing action, then obviously the fighting stuff is fun. But if you don't have a real interest in people and how they are affected by situations, it's all very superficial. And Ram V is just the exact opposite of that. Just as a writer, he is so interested in the human condition and in, in, in who people are and what their struggles are. And, and I just appreciate that about his work above everything else. I think that is just... Um, it's, it's just the best thing about how he writes. And so that little interlude where we get the story of, uh, of you know, the guy who the, who the recipe came from is my favorite part in the whole book because it feels so real and lived in and, and honest, I guess is the best way to put it. To me, you know, writing fiction is basically an attempt at telling the truth through lies, if that makes sense. And so the so the story is 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 a lie, but the emotional content of it is truth, and that that it's it's beautiful, man. It's just a great great scene and a really strong first issue. It's so weird because you're like in some ways you're rooting for this character, like you like I don't know why I want this documentary to be made, but I absolutely do. And then like he's clearly manipulating the this young filmmaker who is given up on his craft, who's quit school, quit film school or what have you, and like he comes back and he's like, I'm I'm gonna do it because it was good chai, and I'm like that that and and as someone who is interested and intrigued by the culinary world. And like how much good food can really just pull you in and make you excuse. Like you could go to a place, Dave, with like that has the worst customer service, but the food's good. You don't care. Like it's just like and that's part of that hyper realistic lived in world. Like I'm just so fascinated. Also, like my other big takeaway is I can't wait to go punt back and read his detective comics work. Like I never would have found myself interested in reading detective comics before this. And I think you and I were chatting beforehand of like this goth horror vibe that, that readers have said that he kind of cultivates in that. I'm like, Oh, sign me up. No, I totally agree. Um, I'm definitely going to have to check it out. Alrighty folks. There you have it. Those are the uh, four first issues that we checked out for you. What are your thoughts about uh, Wonder Woman, about Captain America, about The Flash, and about um, rare, rare Flavors, number one. Uh, find us on social media. Let us know. Uh, we are uh, pretty much everywhere that social media can be found, at Nerd by Word or individually at That Nerd Dave and at That Nerd Chris. All right. Uh, let's uh, take a beat. And when we come back, it's time for another Nerd Nightmare. Ladies and gentle, gentle people, welcome back. It is still the spooky season, which means that it's time for... Nerd Nightmare. All right, and this week we did something a little different. Once again, trying to scare the pants off of Chris, we watched... 
Cabin in the Woods. <clears throat> Here is the official tagline. When five college friends arrive at a remote forest cabin for a little vacation, little do they expect the horrors that await them. One by one, the youths fall victim to backward zombies, but there is another factor at play. Two scientists are manipulating the ghoulish goings-on, but even as the body count rises, there is yet more at work than meets the eye. The movie was released on April 13th, 2012, was directed by Drew Goddard, and features a screenplay by Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon. The budget was $30 million. Um, also features uh, some noteworthy individuals in the cast, including uh, Jesse Williams, who I believe is a main, was a mainstay on Grey's Anatomy for quite a while, Chris Hemsworth of Thor fame, and a very, very notable, I, I love this guy, Bradley Whitford as one of the scientists. Uh, Richard so Jenkins, cr- don't forget Dr. Doback from Step Brothers. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, that that's fair. Uh, I'm just a very big Bradley Whitford fan. I think the guy's just a whole nother level. That was the first thing that I said to you in our text exchange last night. Yeah, that 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 guy is just a whole nother level. So, anyways, Chris, as uh, is usual, I'm really interested on uh, in your take on this movie. First, um, it definitely seems to have uh, had an impact on you. So, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Get your get your clicky clicky pen ready. <laughs> This was f***ing genius. I loved this movie. Like, I thought it was so smart. It was ambitious. It went for it. Like, this was... I love I love meta stuff. Like, I'm a very macro person. I like meta stuff. And this was so ambitious. Uh, I understand your trepidation, because he who shall remain nameless although already named, uh, was one of the driving forces behind this. So now we've got to separate art from artists. But thankfully, Drew Goddard is there and, to my knowledge, hasn't done anything untoward. Um, but I, I also looked at Drew Goddard's work when you know clicking on his IMDb, and he's been in other stuff that I've, I've dug as well. Um, I, I really dug Cloverfield. I was really fascinated by that. Um, it was, it was really, really cool. Um, and so like, oh, also created the Netflix series daredevil, like, so shocker, like that. I like this. I, I thought it was, I thought it was just so smart. I thought it was so smart. It turned everything on its head. I think the fact that it was so meta and it was a satire and there was humor and like it completely divorced any of the violence for me. I wasn't scared like for a moment in this film. Um, I texted you like this may have unlocked something for me. So don't hold me to that. But this like it was I think it was so it was so freaking smart. Like I I love the the system reboot was the biggest mind bleep that I have ever experienced in a movie where you have all of these possible characters just wreaking total havoc. Um, And then like to have full spoilers, because why are you listening to this if you haven't seen this movie? The fact that like this is all just a ritual sacrifice for another theme for today the elder gods or whatever the the ancient gods or whatever and if this is not a successful ritual then they will be released they will rise um and that is like maybe i'm going to i i honestly felt like marty like this entire movie shouts to marty one of my favorite characters in a horror movie i've ever seen like 
dude was dude was smoking the good stuff because it was it was like Sherlock Holmes like opening levels to his brain uh, of, of like enlightenment he was was being achieved with whatever was was in his supply but i kind of felt like him because i was like this is such a meta contextual thing a metatextual thing on on like the human kind like the fact that japan has its own branch that stockholm has its own branch that like this is what we do and it's all to satisfy the bloodlust of humanity we are the elder gods because they do this for our entertainment it's the gladiators all over again it's the it's the coliseum like why do we watch horror movies it's the bloodlust in the human condition i it, i'm just it's so good um the one of the funniest things is like hemsworth like can't help but be thor <laughs> and maybe that's the pheromones and oh that was the other part that was so cool is like watching the controlled environment that they're in they're releasing pheromones they're releasing chemicals to kind of influence the human behavior it was fascinating and so maybe that was part of it but like yeah it, he was just thor with a haircut um before right before ragnarok like he couldn't help but but be thor and like having the dumbest possible death <laughs> of like i'm gonna evil knievel this crap and then yeah how did that end for you um i i love the the fact that they turned the end on its head the the ending was was chef's kiss and like just having that elder god hand come and just smash all of it was us uh, just perfect for me yeah uh i i can't disagree with anything you said i think um, as a longtime horror fan, there's so much going on here playing around with with archetypes, you know, with things that we see over and over again with with the tropes and horror movies with the the cookie cutter characters that are just being lined up for sacrifice, you know, uh, the, 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 the slutty girl, the jock, that's dumb, right? But it's all twisted around like the jock is not actually dumb. They're just making him dumb, right? <clears throat> you know, those the, the way they play with the with the expectations that longtime horror fans in particular have is so much fun. You know, the lake that they go to looks straight out of, you know, Friday the 13th. Also, sorry. The, the, the Latin gets you every time. Stop don't read reading the Latin. the Latin. I love I love that that Marty immediately pointed that out. He was like, "Yeah, I, I draw the line at the Latin. Let's not yes. read the Latin." <laughs> Like, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's that's the correct reaction if you're in a horror movie. Don't read the Latin. Um, but you know the 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 lake very much Friday the Thirteenth, the cabin very much Evil Dead. You know, uh, at one point when they're in the uh, in the basement, right, and they have all these different things, and each object that they're playing with could be one different scenario that, was that they go so into. Cool. No, Bradley Whitford, clam Bradley Whitford's character clamoring for a merman. Just please, I want a merman so bad. And then the fact that after the system reboot, he's killed by a merman and it like makes him happy as he's dying was just so perfect. Yeah. Um, but there's like this ball that they play with in the basement, right? That's like a puzzle and they're moving it around. And it very much is reminiscent of like the puzzle box in the Hellraiser franchise, right? So there's all these different elements here, man, that are so clearly references, you know, tips of the hat, 
but but not in a we're ripping them off kind of way and more of an we get you like we get the horror franchise but i think you nailed it when you said that the smartest and best thing about this movie is that we are um we are the elder gods like you know we can, you can we can talk about you know the elder gods and the sacrifice blah blah it's all a nice plot point but the point repeatedly uh, is and I pointed this out to my wife as I, as we were rewatching it too. Is is that we are the elder gods, right? It, the notion that we are wanting the sacrifice. Um, you know, at one point, Bradley Whitford's character is like clamoring for um, to, to, uh, jewels for, to take to yes. take her shirt off, right? Yes. And and this one guard is like, uh, "Don't you think this is a little well, in he bad was, taste?" That he, was a really interesting meta character as well. The security guard, yeah, yeah. And then, and then Bradley Whitford's character, Steve, he's like, we're not the only ones watching. we got to give our audience what they want. And it's like, you know, there's always that character, you know, that like takes their shirt off in every horror movie, it feels like. You know, if it's R-rated, there is going to be nudity. And it's like, we're the Elder Gods. This, these are the things that horror movie fans are looking for. That's what we're clamoring for. They're actually tr- doing all these things to satisfy us, turning real people into, you know, cardboard cutouts and a stereotype so they behave a certain simple way so they can be led to the slaughter. You know, it's it's a commentary on, on the horror genre and a commentary on horror horror fandom all wrapped into a really really fun horror movie i said uh, it this was is the kind of smart is, you don't get usually this is what i said i said it's a horror tinged love child of rat race and the truman show <laughs> it is it's really something isn't it yeah it's it's a and it's so With a little bit me. of death race in there you remember death race where oh like, yes they were, they were yes. like betting on who was gonna win like these convicts yeah and it is such a typical movie for Hollywood that went completely marketed wrong in, in that they didn't market it at all at all. It was like delayed. a movie or something. It was delayed and all this different stuff. Financial yeah, and it's it's so and so forgotten now too, you know? Like this movie is is what, twelve years old or something? And it's and it's so forgotten. And it, as far as like the horror genre, it's easily one of the smartest things in in, in horror that I've watched. So I, th- I think this is, you know, not not to be, you know, hey, th- you know, one of one of those people, but this is a real hidden gem, you know. This is a this is a classic of the horror genre that too many people don't really appreciate. Um, it's very sad to me because it's it's so smart and so interesting. And and why is there not a sequel? Because well, let's be honest. How do you make a sequel to a movie that literally ends the world? Oh, dude. Also, the Japan branch. I loved oh, that the Japan that. branch when we when we saw like them on the screens that it was so perfect J horror. It looked like something from like it looked like the Ringu or, or from or or the Grudge or yeah. It's very like in your face J horror. Grudge. Like, thank you. I couldn't you, think of it. Yes, the Grudge. Yes. Yeah, and that's what this is. Like, it's like, hey, this is Japanese horror, so these are the kinds of things that 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 branch draws on, right? It's like such an understanding of of, of the horror genre. It, it, it's it's so rare that you get people making horror movies that understand not just how to make a you know a scary movie, but understand how the genre works, you know, on a fundamental level. That's very, very cool movie. And I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. I thought this one might be interesting to you, but seeing you enjoy it this much this has is, made me very, very happy. This is right up there with it, chapter one as like the ones that I've enjoyed the most. Far and away. Fantastic, man. 
Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Uh, another nerd nightmare has passed. What did you think of Cabin in the Woods? Do you remember this one? Uh, find us on social media and let us know what you think. We are on uh, Twitter and Instagram, oh, Twix, I'm sorry, and uh, Instagram and uh, all sorts of other platforms at uh, Nerd by Word and individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And uh, the call to action. We need you to, if you like what you hear today, make sure you like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, we're there, including nerdbyword.com, a fancy new sexy website by Dave that has been revitalized and uh, updated. Um, And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.